young people today, and I'm sitting here at Stanford and I teach a lot of these young people, they actually are very patriotic. They want to do the right thing. They've never really, a lot of the computer science students have never really thought about technology in the national interest before. They don't have to take courses in it. Mm -hmm. right? It's not required, but they're open. And so if you reach these young people and get the, you know, the Sergey Brins and the Larry Pages of tomorrow, by the way, they were in their 20s when they started Google. So tomorrow's not that far away for Stanford undergraduates. You really can change minds over the long term. And I think that's where the good money should be placed, is how can we actually bridge the divide and educate these young, bright engineers so that when they go to these companies, the workforce is demanding that we support the United States, not that we ignore those national Welcome to episode 256 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I usually give a disclaimer at this point, and I have been asked by Ann Baker to make clear that the views expressed here are not those of our spouses or our clients or our institutions. Uh, um, and so I've now... Uh, uh, fulfilled my spousal duty. Uh, today, we'll be interviewing uh, uh, Dr. Amy Ziegart, uh, who's a senior fellow at uh, Stanford's Hoover Institution and the uh, Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Joining me for the news roundup, we've got Maury Schenk, who advises Steptoe on European technology issues out of our London office. Uh, uh, we've got Jennifer Kornbarabinov, who chairs our class action practice. Uh, and we got Matthew Hyman, uh, who is a Senior Fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University uh, and formerly with the National Security Division at Justice. Uh, uh, welcome, Matthew. Thank you, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, let's jump right in. I'm going to uh, start by acknowledging that uh, the Mueller report has been handed in and summarized by Attorney General Barr, uh, and that marks um, not quite the end, but close to the end of all of the cyber uh, speculation surrounding the um, uh, possible collusion between uh, uh, the Trump campaign and the, um, uh, the Russian uh, uh, cyber attacks. I'm not sure there's a lot other than that, to be I mean, there's plenty of lessons to be drawn from that, uh, from a partisan point of view, uh, uh, and about media credibility. But I don't think uh, it's going to change much in terms of the landscape of the law uh, with respect to cyber matters. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, Matthew, you disagree? Yeah, I have not seen enough from it yet, um, but I, I didn't see any major cyber dimension there. Yeah, there's 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 a there's a, there's going to be a lot of of a very partisan discussion of obstruction of justice. Uh, although I think the legal uh, issues uh, resolved from the point of view of the Justice Department, uh, but that was never a particularly cybery uh, issue. And the stuff about what the Russians did to us, uh, um, I think we now know pretty much what they did, and that's in all the indictments of Russians. Uh, and there's not a lot. Uh, uh, of additional information about what the Trump administration might have done in coordination with them. I, I think that's right, Stuart. I think the only kind of cybery piece that's still out there may be uh, whatever happens with Roger Stone and WikiLeaks, and it might be interesting as a cyber observer to see what all that was about. But even that is more a story of 
whether he was coordinating or not, rather than cyber techniques and exploits. Yeah, and they'll, they'll, they're clearly going after Assange, uh, who mm -hmm. is now uh, is viewed as a villain on the left, mm -hmm. uh, whereas before he was sort of a uh, First Amendment hero. That will make it much harder for him to mount a, uh, a, a defense if he ever shows up in a U.S. courtroom, which I suspect sooner or later he will. Yeah. So the other very uh, timely and 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 sad thing is the uh, massacre of uh, 50 people in uh, uh, mosques in New Zealand and the reaction to it, which I have to say has been uh, sweeping in its uh, effort to control distribution of material. Uh, Maury, uh, uh, did you know that uh, New Zealand had a, a, a somebody whose title was chief censor? Not until this happened, but you know, that seems to be the legal reaction is driven by New Zealand law, it appears. As you said, there's a sweeping reaction that we want to avoid posting this. People aren't being explicit. I think it's a combination of avoiding incentivizing similar behavior and not fomenting this, you know, hate crimes. But the law, the legal issue seems to be coming from New Zealand. The, the bigger things that I see, you know, the, the big picture issues, I think, number one is people are really getting good at hacking online content, becoming cleverly poisonous, I would say. You know, the idea of a live first-person shooter video, you were mentioning the Mueller report. I mean, we all know about Russian hacking now, uh, yeah, election manipulation, and that's going to drive regulation. Yeah, I, and I think there's a big question. What do we regulate and who's responsible for it and how do they do it? Uh, there's been a lot of talk around the New Zealand video about the inability of AIs to remove the video because people change the color, people change the length, and then it's impossible to do. There's a host of tough cyber issues around this. Yeah. So the uh, the usual response is to hash the thing and then uh, uh, look for hashes that match. And obviously, if you change one bit, uh, uh, then the hash doesn't match. Uh, and uh, uh, people have been doing that. I, my understanding is they may, the, uh, uh, the Facebook and uh, uh, YouTube may have keyed off of the audio rather than the video and may have found ways to uh, to prevent people from um, doing obvious things to avoid the censor. But uh, – and it sounds as though they, they blocked a lot of uh, uh, content but uh, still hundreds of thousands of copies got through. Um, I have to say uh, I understand why New Zealand's reaction to this is utter horror. They probably lost – more people in that attack as a percentage of their uh, population than we lost in 9-11. Um, and so what you have is a mix of horror at the event, uh, revulsion at what the video depicts, plus a sense that this this must somehow be a uh, uh, a recruitment uh, video or hate speech. Uh, and certainly from what I hear, there's plenty of hate speech um, associated with the video. But uh, separating those out, teasing them out and asking why are we doing this and why are we doing it so aggressively to the point where uh, we have our ISPs closing off access to entire sites just because one of the items on the site uh, is, is this video. 
my my sense is that, that we may take another look at this, or the Aussies and the New Zealanders uh, may take a another look at this in six months and wonder exactly what they were doing and why, and whether that's the most appropriate response. Yeah, for once, I'm uh, completely in agreement there. I mean, we all have revulsion at the event, but um, you know, you got to decide what classes of online content to restrict. The video is pretty, I, I mean, I haven't seen it, but sounds pretty horrific, although Erdogan in Turkey was using it at campaign stops while he was uh, complimenting Jacinda Ardern. But what was also blocked in <laughs> that, New that Zealand... Does, does, that does not actually make me feel that there's a, that this is any less incendiary uh, or loathsome. Er, Erdogan, no, no, Erdogan's it, it a doesn't. I just, there's a lack of global consensus, but... I think even under U.S. law, you could defend the takedown of this video as hate speech. But there's also a manifesto which New Zealand has blocked. Uh, that's still out there. Um, I, I was looking at it today. It's, you know, it's a defense of mass murder. And in that, it's pretty horrible. But it was written by it's it's lucid and intelligent. And it's not that far away from the white supremacist speech that we allow freely at least in the United States. And I think that's going to be a harder question for a lot of countries about whether to block that kind of content. Yeah. The guy at one point refers to himself as an echo-fascist, which uh, doesn't doesn't, doesn't fit the narrative very well. Um, uh, Well, I I think we'll come back to this, is my guess. Uh, I'm disappointed that everyone seems to think, uh, well, this is a bad thing we can now blame on Facebook and Google, which is a, a kind of a, a dumb reaction and, and setting of a standard that will never be met, that they should they should never allow this sort of thing to be uh, on uh, the internet. Um, let's, let's move on um, uh, to other governments that are not exactly uh, uh, crowning themselves with glory. Uh, we talked about the FAA and uh, its um, questionably uh, effective approach to regulating software safety in the case of uh, the 737 MAX. Uh, uh, but already there's a regulatory agency that looks less competent in the area of dealing with uh, um, uh, software and security, uh, and that's the FDA, which apparently has allowed to companies uh, to put defibrillators in the chests of tens of thousands of people that can be easily hacked remotely by tweaking the uh, uh, the radio waves. Uh, Matthew? Yeah. This is a story uh, about uh, a Medtronic defibrillator. And uh, there's a group called uh, Clever Security. And uh, they did some investigations and found it was very easy. Uh, if you're within uh, the uh, distance uh, of those transmissions to alter even the, the firmware on the defibrillator. Uh, so scary stuff. It is, I, I think, a useful reminder that uh, medical implanted devices are part of that larger web of the Internet of Things and how poorly secure the Internet of Things generally is. And I, the other thing that struck me from the news story, and I'm referring to an Ars Technica story from last week, was uh, there was a message there from a spokesperson from Medtronic saying, well, um, you know, it's very unlikely this would ever come to pass. Oh, give me a break. Well, the, 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 the thing that concerned me just as a messaging piece from a corporation is to say, and if it were to come to pass, here's the roadmap for how you'd have to do it. 
Uh, so it, it's it's kind of a strange message from the company to say, and if you were to do this, here are A through D on how you get it done. So the whole thing's a mess. Yeah, and and the uh, the the notion, well, because more patients have benefited from remote uh, uh, monitoring than have died so far. We're just going to leave it there. I, you know, it's just yeah. I, 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 the FDA has known that there are problems like mm -hmm. this. There were, was another problem uh, uh, earlier, two, three years ago, and they just don't know how to deal with it. Uh, they heard about this one over a year ago, and I guess they've been waiting for some fixes, but the, the fixes don't strike me as – uh, particularly compelling. Uh, uh, now they've announced it. Uh, and, you know, uh, th there are governments <laughs> that already have our medical records, so they know exactly who has defibrillators, uh, who can now go around uh, extorting uh, cooperation from people who have the defibrillators just by giving them, you know, kind of uh, demos of what their defibrillator can do in the hands of a foreign government. Let's, uh, let, let, let's talk about... Uh, Jennifer is here, so I'm going to have to call it Cypre. Uh, is, Cy is that where we landed? That's where we landed. I we landed in French. I remembered that there was a kerfuffle, but I don't remember uh, the resolution. Well, the uh, I, I, I still believe that <laughs> I am right, but I have been persuaded that I am right in a fuddy-duddy, stuffy way and that uh, uh, everybody else – uh, calls it Cypre, and I should just get over it. Uh, so that's what I'm going to do uh, instead of uh, instead of insisting on Cypre. Uh, uh, it's the engine, as everybody knows uh, now, I think, of uh, a lot of privacy class action settlements, uh, since you're not going to give the money back because there isn't any money to give back, uh, and uh, uh, there are too many people, and um, uh, no one will settle for something that makes people whose data has been exposed feel better. So instead, they just give the money to some um, uh, uh, NGO somewhere and say, that's as close as we could get to giving the money back to the people who were harmed. And it's a controversial practice. Uh, went up to the Supreme Court. There was some speculation, well, maybe the Supreme Court is going to put some limits on this. Uh, and instead, they sent the case back to the Ninth Circuit. Um, what does that mean? Well, that's a good question. Uh, according to the Supreme Court, nothing in our opinion should be interpreted as expressing a view on any particular resolution of the standing question that they sent the uh, the case back to uh, address. So uh, in terms of, you know, what actually constitutes, uh, you know, an actionable harm under some of these uh, statutes that provide for uh, statutory damages uh, remains uh, at least uh, opaque, they say. Um, in terms of Cypre, though, you know, it is kind of unclear. Cypre has been criticized in the past uh, as an area that is uh, rife with potential conflicts of interest with respect to the recipients of these uh, remaining funds. Well, yeah. Uh, it goes to the fav fav favorite charity of the judge or maybe to the uh, to the uh, university right. that the uh, plaintiff's lawyer wants to get his kid into. Right. Alma maters and relatives <laughs> uh, figure large in, in some of these distributions. So, um, so basically, the case was remanded because uh, it was decided before the Supreme Court decided the Spokio case. Uh, about standing in some of these statutory damage class actions. And uh, the Supreme Court said, you know, don't think anything, don't think anything of it, uh, that we are remanding it back. We're, that shouldn't be read to uh, 
you know, uh, sort of as a signal of our views one way or the other. You know, on Cypre, what we do know is that Justice Roberts has expressed skepticism about the practice in the past. Justice Thomas actually dissented from this opinion and said that he would have found standing and he would have invalidated the settlement. As well, that's a, that's you know that strikes me as a pretty big clue. Uh, he is not at the center of the court, but he's pretty close to four other votes. Uh, well, and Justice think? Roberts passed skepticism, right? Yeah. Given in a world so, where he's a swing so justice. So there, there right? you are, right? Uh, this means Cypre is probably you know standing on a block of ice and a bar of soap. Uh, and uh, it's just a question of when the, the case that they think is ripe gets to them. Right. I think, that, I think that that's true. I mean, it's certainly hard to imagine uh, this particular court being very favorably inclined uh, to these kinds of settlements. Now, that, that, that is not necessarily a great thing for defendants. Uh, that's right, I, I, because you can't settle for a number that makes the um, uh, fees that uh, are really the settlement amount look plausible. Right. And so when you look at this Google settlement, right, the Google settlement involved um, some change to their disclosures, $5 million in Cypre payments and uh, $2 million to class counsel, right? So – Given the number of people at issue here, if you're going to pay people any amount of money, you know, that, that adds up to a lot of money. And then there's the administration costs of giving out money. And so these Cypre awards have provided, provided a mechanism to, uh, you know, arguably uh, modify practices in a way that uh, palliates plaintiff's counsel at, at a minimum. And then, uh, you know, gets the matter behind it. For so the when it comes to settlements today, right, um, it's fair to say uh, it's a game of Russian roulette. You could still do a Cypre settlement. Uh, and if the case is, is goes to final judgment, you're home free, uh, even if the Supreme Court thinks that it's a stupid thing to do, right? Uh, so you can still do these settlements, but if they get challenged, um, you know, you could, you could turn out that uh, you're the lucky uh, ticket to the Supreme Court uh, or that um, uh, you just hang around long enough to be invalidated as a result of an unfavorable Supreme Court decision. Well, right. And, and you know, Ted Frank, who is the uh, the petitioner in this case, uh, you know, he this is his uh, personal sort crusade. of employment plan and crusade, and it's the uh, one of the uh, issues of his uh, Center for Class Action Fairness. Uh, so, is that like an NGO you could, you could give Cypre funds to? Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Okay. So, yeah. So, so look, it, it's hard to imagine that in light of this, a lot of those uh, settlements would go uh, under the radar. Yes. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, and I know you'll have to leave, uh, so I, I appreciate your coming in to uh, illuminate this for us. Uh, all right. M moving along, uh, everybody is still blaming uh, Twitter for and, and uh, Facebook and social media uh, for bias against conservatives. Uh, Josh Hawley, who's the youngest and newest uh, member of the Senate, uh, um, is really on their case looking for antitrust and other breakup uh, and uh, privacy remedies against them. Uh, uh, he and Elizabeth Warren uh, will make an odd couple, but an enthusiastic one uh, uh, for regulating these guys. Devin Nunes has sued Twitter for allowing 
an account named Devin Nunes's mom and then Devin's cow to, um, as he says, defame him. And some of the stuff I thought actually that they said was defamatory or at least pretty close to it. Uh, it, it wasn't just uh, uh, you're a scumbag who doesn't reflect my values, but you know, you've committed crimes uh, uh, and the like. Uh, and he's suing not just the people who posted that, but Twitter, because he says that they have engaged in shadow banning and other and failed to to take action in accordance with their terms of service because they don't like him because he's a conservative. Uh, this is going to be a tough case for him to win. The question is, can he get past all of the scrutiny that is usually done? before you're allowed to find out who's actually been saying bad things about you and whether he can get to discovery on Twitter to see if there's evidence that uh, Twitter employees were uh, laughing at uh, the statements of Devin Nunes' cow rather than trying to decide whether they were uh, consistent with the terms of service at uh, Twitter. Uh, so this lawsuit will go a little ways, maybe not too far. <laughs> Who knows? Is this like the third or the fourth multi-billion dollar award that the EU has imposed on Google for antitrust violations, Matthew? Third. 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 Yeah. So are we pushing – are we over – we're over five billion then, right? We are. If we were to do the old timpani from the Jerry Lewis mm -hmm. telethon and we ran that tote, yep. uh, we'd be up to $7.67 billion <sighs> now since 2017. So it's a pretty good uh, revenue stream for the uh, EU at the moment, which is tagging uh, Google every once in a while for a couple billion for the way it did business years ago and no longer does. Yeah. Uh, and this one I, I almost could not understand. Uh, what they're saying is that uh, uh, Google was saying, if you want our search bar on your site, mm -hmm. you have to run – a lot of our ads, uh, presumably in the search results, uh, uh, and that meant fewer ads from other right. uh, folks who might be also in the ad business. And I, I'm having trouble seeing why. I guess they said that was an abuse of a dominant position. Exactly. Uh, and I, again, putting massive fines on abuse of a dominant position where, frankly, you don't know it's illegal until somebody tells you, right? right? They say, okay, you're dominant. Well, you can probably figure out you're dominant. But to know what's an abuse and what's not is something that is entirely in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Yes. It's in the eye of uh, vestiger. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think what this also points out too, uh, particularly when we're talking about the cyber and tech space, is at least to date the large – large-scale futility of antitrust regulation. Uh, if we go back to the early 2000s, I know there's great debate about whether the, the great antitrust case against Microsoft in the context of bundling browsers was really effective. I tend to view it wasn't very effective. No, it was clearly not effective, and, but it was what it did is it scared them into pulling their punches for fear they'd be abusing some other dominant position. And, and that opened the door for competitors they might have been able to squash. This is exactly what happened to IBM. It, it's exactly what happened to IBM. And I think it's what the EU is trying to do to Alphabet or Google, which is to create a chilling effect that you're so spooked about doing anything uh, that you don't do anything and well, therefore and, and others enter the space. Google, Google has yet to produce a product since Android that mm -hmm. is a success. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems to be working.
Yes, and that's a success because <laughs> they're giving it away. So the only the only place they're making money is advertising, and so uh, uh, the EU has successfully put them in that particular uh, uh, fenced-in area uh, and uh, opened the door to Facebook, which I'm sure uh, the Europeans are grateful for. Yes, well, and th- that'll just be next on their hit list. Yeah, exactly. Well, that does seem to be the way this works. Uh, Although if you look broad, more broadly than Google within Alphabet, you've got Waymo, which people are now saying is worth over $100 billion. So there's another product that they're doing pretty well with. Well, uh, in, 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 in the estimation of uh, uh, investors, yes. Uh, whether that will turn out to be the case, there's plenty of other people who are hoping that they'll get the $100 billion. But you're right. Uh, um, they are still looking. I, I would say that's a really good research project. So whether it's commercializable and whether they're the ones who commercialize it remains to be seen. Okay. I love this story. I just love this story. Uh, this is the the North Korean embassy in Spain. Somebody just drives up at three in the afternoon, gets out of a car, walks in, takes over the embassy, ties up all of the embassy officials, mm-hmm. steals massive amounts of electronics, uh, a little bit ham-handed. They're carrying toy guns. Uh, they let somebody escape. The police come. They or uh, they they say oh, no 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 problem, and they apparently look Korean, and the police say okay, and they they, they drive away at, at high speed in what appears to be stolen vehicles from the embassy. I you know I, and I just I, I I oh wait, there's one more piece yes. too. Before they race away in the embassy vehicles, they have time to shoot a video of them yes. ripping up pictures of Kim Il Sung and Kim Jong Il. Yes, saying we're destroying these images on Korean uh, territory. Yeah, North Korean territory. Yeah, it's it it is remarkable. I uh, and. Uh, um, the, the there were some Spanish newspapers who said, "Well, it's probably the CIA because that's what Spanish newspapers say." Uh, I I doubt that, but God, I wish it was. I what a what a great way to suggest that we are running out of patience with North Korean hacking. But it looks like they may be somebody who's getting support from some intelligence agencies, including perhaps uh, ours. Uh, they have gone to the FBI and mm-hmm. sent their stuff to the FBI mm-hmm. saying, hey, please protect us. We've got good stuff and and we're good guys. Uh, um, a, there's been very little reaction out of uh, Pyongyang, though, right? Yeah. Well, apparently they've been completely silent on it uh, to date. And so kind of makes sense, too, because Pyongyang would be in this very awkward position of commenting on something that they probably don't want their citizenry to know anything about. Yep. Okay. Amori, U.S. chip makers are objecting to the idea that uh, China, as part of a trade deal, might buy more U.S. chips. That sounds counterintuitive. How come they're doing that? My guess, what they've said is the Chinese have offered to basically double purchases of U.S. chips from 15 to $30 billion a year. And the U.S. chip makers are saying, well, that would be expensive for us because we'd have to move assembly operations to China and then we'd be more under Chinese control. My guess is what's really going on is that the trade remedies, uh, the existing tariffs have been better for the chip makers than that free market competition would be. Um, You know, Micron is the big interlocutor here for DRAM chips. They have a big battle going on with Fujian Jinhua, which is sort of a company that's gotten $6 billion from the Chinese state and to start a chip industry there. And they were really hit hard by the Trump tariffs. And I think that's probably been good for the industry and their 
happier with the status quo than a deal. Yeah, I, that makes sense. I, and it does show that it's really hard to do protectionism right. There are all kinds of surprises if you uh, start down that road and doing deals. Um, you are in many ways super empowering the company, the country that agrees to the limits because then they decide who gets to uh, uh, sell and who doesn't, uh, uh, who's going to, uh, whose products are going to be bought and whose aren't. Um, all of those decisions will be made by the Chinese government and they'll be made um, based on their assessment of whether the um, companies that are uh, making the sales have been good for China, which of course is not necessarily the outcome you want if you're President Trump. Two other quick uh, stories. Egypt has tightened its rules on what the state can block. Uh, you know, welcome to the party, right? If, if New Zealand has a chief censor, uh, Egypt doesn't have to be particularly uh, uh, defensive about uh, this new law. That's right. If you've got a website with uh, 5,000 uh, followers or more, you are in the crosshairs potentially if you publish fake news in Egypt uh, about the regime or if you say anything ne negative about President Sisi. And I think the thing that's got uh, journalists in Egypt particularly concerned is prior to this, um, for the government to do this, they'd have to get a court order. And now they don't. And so it's, um, I think it's the same story we're seeing across the world where governments are ratcheting pressure down on social media sites, news sites. Um, you know, they fall in line with, uh, you know, New Zealand, it's got a cheap censor, Vietnam, Russia, you go around the world and all governments are finding ways to ratchet down on um, the free and open internet that was promised yeah, to we, citizens we, we, of the world. Uh, we, we're, we're definitely not getting that uh, and we're not even getting a jawboned uh, uh, free internet. Uh, uh, okay, last uh, uh, item, just uh, to let you know, remember that uh, a, a district court said that uh, President Trump could not use blocking features that are standard in uh, Twitter on his account to uh, uh, mute people who were persistent critics, if not worse, because that was a First Amendment violation because this was a government forum. I, 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 I was kind of reluctantly persuaded that maybe that was true, although it strikes me as pretty odd that he can't use tools that everybody else can use. Uh, that case is going to be argued on appeal tomorrow. So we will pretty soon have a feel for whether the Court of Appeals agrees with the uh, district court uh, and whether any of the judges thinks that there's a First Amendment problem here. That's our news roundup. Uh, let's move quickly to our interview with Amy Ziegart. Dr. Ziegart is a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogley uh, Institute for International Studies. She and Herb Lynn recently co-edited Bites, Bombs, and Spies, The Strategic Dimensions of Offensive Cyber Operations, and she's a contributing editor at Atlantic. So let's turn to that interview. Amy, uh, one of the stories we didn't cover today is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff going out to Silicon Valley, basically really pissed at Google. Um, you've written about the culture clash between the Pentagon and Silicon Valley. Um, is the chairman right to be pissed? I understand why the chairman is pissed off, and I think there are many who share his views. But I think the problem, Stuart, really is deeper than that. 
there is a, as you know, a, a, a serious trust deficit between the Valley and the intelligence community. And it really goes back uh, to 2013 and the Snowden revelations. And add to that uh, the, the Apple FBI uh, controversy. Uh, and I think you see distrust on both sides. So what I've written about it is that it's really a, a three divides in one. Um, the first is that there is a, um, a gap between the protectors and the protected. So, you know, Chairman Dumford comes out here. Uh, most people in the Valley have not spent a lot of time with the military. They don't know people in the military. They've never interacted with people in the military. So these are very separate worlds. Uh, and I think that is fueling the divide. The second uh, divide that we're dealing with is a training divide. Uh, engineers in the Valley typically don't understand politics and folks in government don't understand engineering. I did look it up, Stuart. You know, there's only one engineer in the entire United States Senate. So there's a, a serious uh, difference of sort of training background. And then there's a generational divide where you have, um, uh, you know, the power in the Valley is for the young and it runs horizontally and power in Washington is for the more experienced, shall we say, and runs uh, vertically. So all of these things are kind of bubbling up at the same time, and uh, which explains why each side doesn't really understand what the other one is getting at. Yeah. So the the, the first one I, I think is pretty serious. Uh, uh, you know, I think the the military thinks of itself as what's that old uh, uh, quote about the uh, civilization depending on rough men standing on the walls and willing to do what it takes to protect everybody uh, inside the walls, and then the people inside the walls tend to take it for granted that uh, the world is peaceful because they've never had a problem, uh, and that easily morphs into thinking that these rough men are are kind of nekulturni, uh, not uh, not our kind of people, and we really shouldn't have any association with them. Uh, and you certainly see that in uh, what, uh, say, the Google engineers who objected to using AI for uh, uh, military purposes uh, have been saying. Uh, so I, think, I think with respect to Google, it's a couple of things, right? So not only has... Google said, uh, you know, we, we really don't want to work on, we won't work on anything that could be used uh, in weapons that has uh, an AI component to it out of our ethical principles, right, which is the problem, part of the problem. At the same time, they said, well, you know, we think we are going to consider working with Beijing on their censored search engine. Hard to know where that initiative stands, but they're not even bidding. Google's not even bidding on uh, Project Jedi, uh, the cloud-based uh, contract with the Pentagon. And so there is this sense, and I, th I think rightly so, where the chairman is saying, you know, we're the good guys here. Why aren't you more willing to work with us? Isn't there uh, also so some he, – he's been objecting to the fact that uh, Google is funding research on AI by professors at Xinhua and maybe other places, which are, are at least down the hall uh, from colleagues who are working pretty closely with the Chinese military. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of the challenge is if we were having this conversation 30 years ago, we wouldn't. It would be a very different conversation because the the security politics and the economics were tightly aligned. There was a Soviet bloc and there was a Western capitalist democratic bloc. But now with China, we see the business imperatives actually conflicting with the national security imperatives. I mean, is there really such a thing as, a, as an independent university researcher in China that doesn't have any ties to the Chinese Communist Party? 
Probably not. Right. And so what we see is that the economic imperatives for a company like Google to have collaboration across geographic lines is really coming into conflict with uh, what the responsibility is as an American company. So I think it's not it's, – it's interesting. For a while, it, there was a real business conflict in, in the sense that lots of companies were making lots of money. Lots of US companies were making lots of money in China and they just wanted to hang on to that market and would – do a lot, uh, including giving away a lot of their IP to joint venture partners, uh, to stay in the game. Uh, my sense is that the big companies that uh, are most likely to have Washington reps uh, have mostly given up on that dream. They they realize that as soon as we we get big and respectable and uh, um, worth talking about in the newspaper, uh, uh, some national champion is going to come along in China and eat our lunch. I don't know, Stuart. I think hope springs eternal with the Chinese market. I don't know that companies give up so readily on you know, more than a billion potential users of their of their goods and services. Uh, you, you could be right. Uh, uh, it may be dumb, uh, but uh, that doesn't prevent people from pursuing it. I think the the, the integration of the global research market is – if it's a market, but the, the, the fact that innovation can occur anywhere there is – support for it and there is a lot of support for it in China really makes um, uh, Silicon Valley subject to FOMO. Uh, they're, they're afraid they're going to miss out on something. I think you're absolutely right. And I have this uh, amazing undergraduate uh, computer science student who is tracing the proliferation chain of um, artificial intelligence, in particular deep learning technology. And he's doing a very careful empirical study looking at papers over the past 20 years and how many different institutions are represented and where they're represented. And he's found um, what, exactly what you're talking about, this globalization of the sort of knowledge supply chain. Uh, and of course, all of these capabilities are becoming more and more simplified. So the code, say, for deep learning is much more simplified now than it was even two years ago. And so it's diffusing in a, in a very rapid way. And so what you're seeing, I think you're exactly right, is this ecosystem that is a global ecosystem of clearly dual use technology, which has tremendous applications in the military context. And we have not confronted this kind of proliferation chain before. So uh, how does this end? It, it, Google is is a uh, an extreme case in some regards. Uh, uh, um, the you know Amazon said, yeah, we want in on that. Uh, if I remember right, uh, um, Microsoft also has uh, resisted the claims by their engineers that they should uh, bail on the United States military. Um, uh, so Google isn't a bit of an outlier. Uh, uh, does it make sense to start saying, you know, uh, uh, screw you too, and 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 taking action? at the governmental level to say, if you're not helping defend the country, uh, uh, you ought to suffer certain uh, harms in the policymaking process? Well, I think the long game has to be about bridging the, the misunderstanding gap, right? We can punish today, but is that going to change minds tomorrow? So I really believe that if we look at, this is the good news of an otherwise sort of dark horizon. If we look at young people today, and I'm sitting here at Stanford and I teach a lot of these young people, they actually are very patriotic. They want to do the right thing. They've never really, a lot of the computer science students have never really thought about technology in the national interest before. They don't have to take courses in it. Mm -hmm. right? It's not required, but they're open. 
And so if you reach these young people and get the, you know, the Sergey Brins and the Larry Pages of tomorrow, by the way, they were in their 20s when they started Google. So tomorrow's not that far away for Stanford undergraduates. You really can change minds over the long term. And I think that's where the good money should be placed is how can we actually bridge the divide and educate these young, bright engineers so that when they go to these companies, the workforce is demanding that we support the United States, not that we ignore those national security imperatives. All right. Let me, ask, to- let me ask you a tough question. Uh, yeah. um, if such a course were um, routinely offered by, um, let's say, 10 of your colleagues at Stanford, how many of them would actually try to teach their students that helping the United States is good for the world? Actually, I think a fair number. And I'll tell you, we do have a course like that now. It has more than 200 students in it. Uh, it is co-taught by Carl Eikenberry. So clearly engineers are interested in learning from a retired general. Um, and so I think that I think the demand is there. And I think what we're seeing, especially with respect to the creation or the launch last week of Stanford's Human-Centered AI Initiative, is a stunning realization that engineers have to understand the political and and societal implications of their inventions. So it's putting uh, humans at the center of technology, and that is a profound difference. So I think there is actually quite a bit of, of energy among my colleagues across the university, including in computer science, about thinking differently about technology. So my my experience is that um, uh, mathematicians doing cryptographic work have been alive to the social consequences of their work since the 70s, and that has not been good for government uh, because they have uh, drunk deep from libertarian and left uh, uh, wells and decided that the best thing they could do for society is to make it much harder for law enforcement to find criminals. Uh, and and you know that's that's how they have designed the world we lived in uh, we live in without there ever being a uh, uh, a vote in the United States on whether that's what we want. You know, so I think we may have to disagree there because I know some of the key players involved in the first crypto wars in the 1970s, which happened right here in the Stanford campus. So Marty Hellman, who uh, was the co-inventor of public key cryptography, um, you know, published this unclassified work, which is the security backbone of the Internet. And um, I don't think he thought of it as screw the government. No, I, I, I agree with you on, on Hellman. I, uh, but uh, the enthusiasm with which this has been embraced and uh, uh, the the people who've implemented all the way down to WhatsApp uh, are doing it with uh, at least one eye on its impact on the National Security Agency. That's the point of most of these changes. They They, they don't really protect people who are seized by authoritarian governments and subjected to um, what we used to call rubber hose cryptanalysis. Uh, 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 But they are really effective at blinding people who depend on uh, intercepting communications in the middle. Look, I agree with you. And I'm a national security person, so I really want to lean far forward toward helping our law enforcement and intelligence agencies do their jobs. But I think the you know the, the the cryptographer experts that I've talked to make a very compelling case. You you open a back door for one, it's a back door for all. 
Yeah, well, so, they, they, of course they do. That's that that because that's the policy position they started with, right? Uh, and and I, 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 I I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. With, and the policy came after. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 as I have pointed out to many of them, there are holes in every single doc, uh, uh, piece of software that you get updates for, uh, and that is an exploitable hole. That is every bit as exploitable as one that was there for government. Uh, and I've never heard any of them say, oh, we've got to stop updates uh, because they recognize it's a balancing uh, test. You have to say, is is what we're doing on balance good or bad for security? Uh, uh, it's They only become absolutists when they're talking about government access. Uh, so uh, that's why I think it is ideological. So we've had, this is now round three of the crypto wars. In the 70s, the NSA was very concerned about it. And, and Bobby Eman came here to talk to Marty Hellman about it. And in the 90s, we had the clipper chip. And the NSA, with all of its great capabilities, overcame both of those challenges. Do you think that's not possible now? No, you, you, there are other things you can do. You, you, you hack the endpoints, obviously. Uh, it, it changes your approach to uh, um, uh, intelligence collection. And hacking the endpoints, while NSA has gotten good at it, has not been, on, the, on average, forcing people into that uh, approach hasn't been good for the relative uh, uh, intelligence strength of the uh, U.S. government. Uh, uh, it's just that, yes, they have overcome it to some degree, and in some respects, it's uh, uh, it's a bonanza. Uh, but unfortunately, it's a bonanza that runs both ways, and uh, we're our our folks are much more vulnerable than they were in a world uh, um, uh, where um, wiretapping was easy and hacking was hard. But anyway, so. Let me let me ask you about intelligence because I, 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 there's a whole bunch of things I'd like to uh, ask you about. Uh, you've been really critical of the national cyber strategy, I, I, and uh, I thought I'd ask you. This is a document that came out what a month ago, uh, I, explaining how the U.S. government was going to approach. Um, cyber issues from a grand strategic point of view. Uh, and as you can tell from my slightly skeptical tone, I'm, I'm probably closer to you than to the government in terms of the value of this. But what's your concern? Well, my concern is that it's, it's, it's not a realistic strategy, and it seems untethered to the other strategies of this administration. So it's a kind of motherhood and apple pie strategy, which many strategies are, but it paints a picture that says, you know, we're going to sustain our advantage in technological innovation when the director of national intelligence recently presented pretty compelling evidence that we're losing our technological edge. So there, there is a lack of urgency to the strategy that is surprising, given that the national security strategy, which I think is a great document, paints a very clear picture that we are in a new competitive environment, particularly with respect to China. So it seems like a very disjointed approach to cyber within the rest of the administration. So, you know, I've, I've, I've been on many sides of this, and I've even written a few strategies uh, uh, while in government. Uh, and 
most of them are just bloviation, right? You're, you're writing them to satisfy some audience, usually Congress, that said, we need a strategy. Uh, let's mandate a strategy. And then you get something that just uh, uh, goes out to the agencies and they, all the agencies say, hey, I'm crucial to this strategy and I'm crucial to this strategy. And, and don't forget to put my, 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 my girlfriend's uh, uh, term paper in there. And that's what you get. Uh, you, you get a collection of uh, gas. Uh, and since nobody actually is acting on the strategy, that's kind of fine. Uh, it, uh, it's just you, you, you shouldn't expect more than that. Uh, you only get good strategies when you actually think you're going to need to use them and you've got a consumer, a president or uh, uh, maybe a DCI uh, who says, a DNI, uh, who says, no, I, this is not answering my questions. I don't see how you take it from this grand level of uh, obloviation down to something we can do tomorrow and how that's going to help us win. Uh, that's what we're missing is, is somebody who actually wants to know how we win. Well, I, I'm not going to disagree with you that there's a lot of bloviation in, in strategies, but there's also sometimes illumination uh, and we should aim to get to illumination rather than bloviation. Um, you know, it's not so much the strategy as it is, as you know, Stuart, the strategic planning that's valuable. It's actually surfacing where do we want to go and how do we want to get there? Yep. And at least what this cyber strategy reflects to me is we don't know where we want to go and we don't know how we're going to get there. And I think that's not true. If you look at the cyber command vision, it actually has a much better formulated approach to how we should be competing in cyberspace. I, I, I'm I'm open to that idea. I have not been blown away by Cyber Command's ability to uh, actually deliver results uh, or to come up with strategies that tell us how we win a cyber conflict. Uh, uh, educate me. <laughs> well, I think the first thing is to say, I don't know what winning looks like. I think, I think the, the basic vision, which is we are in a world of persistent engagement is correct. That if we think about a battlefield domain, which we tend to sort of smuggle in our, our views from the physical world into cyber, and we think about you know owning the domain, that's the wrong construct to think about it. It's a, as George Schultz put it to me last week, it's a work at problem. We have to work at it in cyberspace. So I think that's right. Uh, I think that our past strategies haven't been particularly effective. Uh, and so this is a pretty different approach that we're going to uh, take the battle to the adversary. We're going to defend forward. We want to do it in a in a continuous sort of way. But where I where I would say I have real concerns is on the intelligence side. What kind of exquisite, ubiquitous intelligence is required for that strategy to succeed? And are we prepared to deploy those kinds of assets? That I don't know the answer to, and I'm concerned about it. Don't you think that that, that just means continuous presence in the uh, uh, networks of our adversaries, uh, uh, which uh, I would have thought NSA would say is their goal anyway? Well, I guess the question is continuous presence for what? Continuous presence to listen, sure, NSA would do that anyway. Continuous presence to defend or attack, that's a different story. Yeah, so I'm not sure how much difference that really is because if you're listening, you also could uh, uh, shut the system down in many cases. you uh, Listening tells you when they're doing their patches and uh, what those patches might mean for your ability to stay in the network. So I, uh, I, I do think that... Uh, 
the goal of staying in the network uh, for both um, uh, offensive and intelligence purposes is not a bad place to start. I would agree with you, uh, staying in the network. But as you know, being able to stay in the network is a pretty challenging thing. And just because we're listening doesn't mean they know we're listening. So if you act, then uh, then the adversary knows you have capabilities. So I think we're in in cyber. We're in a very bizarre kind of world where we keep talking about deterrence, but we haven't really isolated what does it mean to deter and who are we trying to deter. So. You know, just because we're sitting in the networks doesn't mean we're actually doing anything with respect to defending or deterring. So let so me I ask. Let's get further toward doing more. Let me let me let me turn the last topic. I think to 2016 election hacking. Uh, this is this is Mueller week. Uh, so, uh, do you think 2016 uh, the 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 uh, Russian attacks on the election system uh, uh, was an intelligence failure? That's a question I've been thinking a lot about lately. And uh, Michael Morell and I have a, an article about this coming out in the next issue of Foreign Affairs. And I want to be really careful here. I think the that Russia's weaponization of social media in the 2016 election absolutely was an intelligence failure. Now, note I said the weaponization of social media. There are two other big components to, to that election interference effort. The hacking of the DNC and the Clinton campaign and the penetration or attempted penetration of state and local voting systems. Let's put those aside. But weaponization of social media was done by Russians on Russian soil. And it was done, we now know, as early as 2014, two years before the election. And it was done with the help of Russian intelligence operatives who were sent to the United States to figure out how to make that campaign more effective. Yet U.S. intelligence did not know about it uh, until very late in the game. And in fact, the weaponization of social media is nowhere in that October 2016 intelligence statement by uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson and DNI Clapper. So, yeah, yes, fair enough. Fair, fair mounting evidence that that was an intelligence failure. Yeah, although I, you know, I, I, I know plenty of people, and I think Mike Morrell might be one of them who, who will tell you, uh, in Washington there are only um, two uh, events uh, in um, uh, foreign affairs. Uh, there are policy successes and intelligence failures, right. Um, right. Uh, and. Uh, uh, but I do think, you know, the the reason we didn't see it in social media is we are not allowed to use social media to, uh, to collect intelligence, to right. do battle with uh, foreign adversaries, because Silicon Valley says, hey, screw you, you're just another constituent, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll take it from here. Absolutely, right? The social media companies have not made it easy for us to defend the nation. I would completely agree with you there. Uh, but this, you know, the, I guess the question really that I keep asking is, what if U.S. intelligence agencies had seen this and seen it with a sense of urgency two years before the election? What difference would that have made? Yeah, well, and that, I'm, I, I kind of wonder because, uh, you know, there was a boat. Like, it's not like they bought so much uh, uh, time or had so much free uh, virality that uh, um, when you look at the campaign as a whole, unless they were brilliant at targeting in ways that nobody who's paid to be brilliant at targeting has been, I, it's not clear to me how much impact uh, uh, the Russian social media stuff has. It, it, it bothers us for good reason, but I'm not sure that uh, it's really changing the, uh, the nature of our society or successfully dividing us in ways we aren't already doing to ourselves. 
I mean, I guess for me, the question isn't so much what change did does it have now, but what could it do tomorrow? So I keep thinking, what did you know? What did the World Trade Center look like on September 10th, 2001? We would have said, oh, there hasn't been a major terrorist attack here since 1993. We're doing everything right. Well, it turns out one day later, we realized we were doing a lot of things wrong. Yeah. So I think this is a sort of a canary in the coal mine of a new technological age that our adversaries are using technologies in ways that we did not imagine. And, and we need to accelerate the transformation of the intelligence community to keep us safe. All right. So last question and the and the most unfair one of the bunch. Uh, uh, you have said uh, uh, it's critical uh, partly uh, to uh, bridge the divide with Silicon Valley and in general to have a nonpartisan, trustworthy intelligence community. And uh, Sometimes that's code word for uh, the president should stop saying mean things about uh, Jim Comey and uh, Jim Clapper. But I frankly, now that the Mueller investigation has found no evidence of collusion, I think it's fair to ask the question, well, who was saying there was? And that was our, the leaders of our intelligence community under the last administration. John Brennan has written some of the most intemperate tweets ever written by a former government official. And Clapper's a little behind him, but not much. Uh, uh, they began an investigation of the people who won the election on a ground that now turns out not to have any basis and which – you know, frankly, we knew most of the things that uh, uh, had been used to start the investigation uh, within three months of uh, the investigation uh, starting. I, I wonder if it's fair to say that uh, John Brennan and Jim Clapper and maybe even Jim Comey ought to answer for the divisions and the lack of trust that we're likely to see for a decade uh, uh, on the right in the intelligence community. I think there are really two issues here. Let's <clears throat> disaggregate the two. One is, you know, the responsibility for former senior intelligence officials. I would agree with you that intemperate comments, tweets, and the like uh, from former intelligence officials can be really unhelpful in the conversation and can politicize the conversation in ways that could have lasting consequences. By the way, the president's been doing that too. Yes. So I think there are both sides that are making this dynamic. Uh, increasingly dysfunctional. But the president has been attacking the intelligence community like no president since 1947. Uh, well, to be, look, to be fair, he has he has responded to, you know, uh, uh, stuff from John Brennan and folks like that in ways that are not well aimed uh, and which have been interpreted by the press, which now doesn't look so uh, uh, nonpartisan uh, as attacks on the intelligence community. But he when he gets the chance, he draws a distinction between the intelligence community and the people he thinks are responsible for the witch hunt. You know, I think there's a broader issue here with the president denigrating uh, the intelligence agencies and people who work there calling them Nazis, not listening to the intelligence assessments about North Korea or Iran. I think there's a bigger issue there. And I, I think, you know, it, it's it's concerning for the future of our intelligence community. He should, he should listen to them for sure. I, I agree with you. I think the Nazi thing was, a, again, a response to uh, um, a, a particular search. Uh, and and you know, he, he pops off, that's for sure. Uh, but 
that's not the same as some having somebody who's been an intelligence professional for most of his career uh, say uh, suggesting that he knows that there's evidence of collusion and uh, uh, influence on the part of uh, of Vladimir Putin with respect to the president. I would agree with you, but I do think you know it's it, it's important for us to remember what Deng Xiaoping said when he was asked about what he thought of the French Revolution, which was it's too soon to tell. So you know we're still learning about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's been more than half a century. So I think it's good news for the president that Mueller um, did not find enough evidence of, of any kind to, uh, to generate additional indictments. But there's a whole lot about Russia's influence operation that I think we won't know for a very long time. Yes, so I, I absolutely agree. In mind. I, I agree with you. Uh, I actually think we ought to take a close look at how this whole um, collusion narrative got started and uh, the extent to which uh, uh, there was misconduct at the uh, uh, Justice Department and uh, the uh, um, uh, intelligence community. I, I hope there wasn't, that this was a, an honest concern and that they were stuck having to make an investigation of something they knew this was was going to be no win for them, but they couldn't ignore it. Uh, that's an entirely possible outcome, but I'd like somebody to spend the kind of time and care that Mueller spent on whether um, Trump was in Putin's pocket, looking at the question whether this was a partisan motivated uh, effort to uh, spike a new administration. Uh, it's I don't know what you call it. It's a banana republic when if you lose the presidential election, you're immediately investigated for criminal acts. Um, what do you call a republic where if you win the election, you're immediately investigated for criminal acts? You call it America. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Okay. Uh, Amy, uh, any uh, uh, events coming up, papers coming out that we should uh, uh, know about that uh, uh, listeners should be watching for? Well, I hope and I look forward to having your listeners uh, read uh, the, the piece Mike Morell and I have in Foreign Affairs. I'd love to hear their thoughts. Uh, and then uh, just a new book that recently came out that I co-edited with Herb Lynn called Bites, Bombs, and Spies about offensive cyber operations. I, I, I've already plugged that. And uh, uh, I have to say that the piece by Chris Inglis there is brilliant and informative in ways that uh, I have yet to see anybody else match. Uh, uh, so there's some great stuff in there. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Dr. Amy Ziegert, uh, Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institute and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Uh, thanks to Amy. Thanks to Maury Schenk. Thanks to Jennifer Quinn-Barabinoff and Matthew Hyman for joining me. This has been Episode 256 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Please send us more uh, suggestions for interview guests, and we'll send you our highly coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, Amy, one is in the mail to you. Um, uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I am proud to say that uh, on LinkedIn and Twitter, I actually got out a whole bunch of these stories that we covered today so that uh, people would know we were thinking about uh, covering them. The more you like them, the more likely we are to uh, uh, include them in the show. Uh, please rate the show uh, and iTunes in particular. Uh, uh, leave us a review. Uh, I'll read the most entertaining, uh, especially the most entertainingly abusive ones uh, uh, on the show. So uh, uh, I look forward to seeing your reviews. Uh, upcoming, we've got Adam Seagal uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations. 
uh, we're going to turn over the entire podcast to uh, uh, the blockchain gurus at Steptoe uh, on April 29. So if you're uh, only in this for the crypto and the blockchain, uh, April 29 is uh, a date to circle. Uh, I want to thank uh, Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, who's actually the audio engineer today, uh, and also the assistant and editor, promoted from intern. He's now working at Steptoe full-time. Uh, congratulations, Mike. Uh, uh, I'm Stuart Baker, host and provocateur-in-chief. Uh, please join us again uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 